and look at the uh, exalted Christ or his exaltation in Acts chapter 5. And I want to begin reading first off with verse number 18 and verse 19. And let's look at what the scriptures say. And they laid their hands on the apostles and took them in the common prison. But the angel of the Lord by night opened the prison doors and brought them forth and said, Go stand and speak in the temple to the people all the words of this life. Now let's also look at verses 28 and 29. Did we not straightly command you that you should not teach in this name? And behold, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. One more scripture I want us to turn to in the previous chapter, chapter 4. And I want to... Read verses 16, 17, and 18, and then we'll start. What shall we do to these men? For that indeed a notable miracle hath been done by them is manifest to all them that dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But that it spread no further among the people, let us straightly threaten them that they speak henceforth to no man in this name, and they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. Now I want you to notice in chapter 5 where we read with verse 18, the disciples ended up in prison because of their announcement of the good news. And you can see that divinely a messenger from heaven came and opened up the prison and then told them specifically, go to the temple and preach. The emphasis that I want to make is on the fact that they were told by the religious authorities, do not proclaim the name of Jesus. But the angel came along and said, you must proclaim it. So here's the issue. At what point do I disobey authority? And at what point do I disobey laws that say to me, do not preach the gospel, do not be a witness? It's obvious that the angel of God was not in agreement with the rabbis and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So that should tell us clearly that when it comes to our belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are not to stop telling people regardless of what laws are passed. It doesn't matter if it's a religious authority or if it's a civil authority. Anyone that says to us we should not talk about Jesus, we should not agree with that, and we should not consent to that, and we should not allow ourselves to be pushed in a corner so that we would obey it. The reason I'm putting the emphasis on this is because the moment the disciples made the decision that they're going to obey God rather than men, the angel got involved. So sometimes there are choices we have to make. If you are put in a position 
where it's I choose God or I choose man and his views and opinions. I can promise you if you're going to obey man over God, there's probably not a whole lot supernatural going to be done. But once you choose God, that's when the Lord gets involved. So let me give you a couple of illustrations. They passed a law in Babylon, and they said, we do not want anyone praying. Don't talk to any god. If you have any petition or request, bring it to the king. If he grants it, fine. But it is outlawed for you to talk to God. You know what Daniel did? As soon as they signed the law into effect, Daniel went right to his house, windows wide open, opened up the blinds, got down on his knees, turned toward Jerusalem, and started calling on God. And you know what happened in the end? He ended up in the pit, but who ended up in the lion's pit with him? Angel of God. So you can see then the choices that we make determine whether or not divine help can come to us. Let me give you another illustration. The king of Babylon decided he wanted personal worship. So he said, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to have them build an image of gold that looks like me. And I'm going to bring everybody out into a big, huge field. And then when I bring our orchestra out here, we've got, you know, some of the best flute players and harp players. And when they start up the music, all of you that are out in the field, you're to bow down on your knees and worship. Now, you know, that man had to have a pretty big ego if he wanted an image of himself. See, Well, all of these people came out there and quite obvious. Many of them didn't see anything wrong with that. How do we know that? Because they bow down. So if you get down on your knees, and you've done it before, if you get down on your knees and you put your face or your forehead to the ground, then, of course, you only have about a 12-inch circumference of space that you can see, but out of your peripheral you can see, and if you turn to the left or to the right you can see, and when they all got down, they looked in either direction, and all they saw were other heads like theirs bowed to the ground. The music is playing, and they are honoring the image. However, there were three Hebrew boys that decided they weren't going to do it. These three Hebrew boys were standing. So somebody came to uh, the king and let them know it because, as I said, everybody's down, and they look to the left, look to the right, you see other heads. But there were some people who certainly looked to the left, looked to the right, and they saw feet. Because Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego decided they weren't getting down on their knees, so they were standing. And the king heard about it. And the king said, I'll tell you what, I'm not going to be disrespected like that in front of all of my people. Bring those three here. Get the musicians back out here. Get them ready to play. And all three of them are going to bow down or they're going into the fiery furnace. And so he brought them out there and he laid the law down. Here are the rules. You bow down or you're going in the fiery furnace. And I want to know what God you have that's going to be able to deliver you from what I put on you. So I love what the three Hebrew children said to him. They said, look, <clears throat> we don't even know if God is going to deliver us from the furnace if you put us in there. But let me tell you what I do know. These 
six kneecaps are not going to touch the ground and bow for you. And, of course, they didn't. And they put these men in the fiery furnace. The king said he did seven times hotter. That's what they did. And the scripture says they were tied up and bound, and they were tossed in there and fell down bound in the fire. The fire never burnt them. The fire never never stained their clothing. The smell of smoke was not upon them because when they looked down in the fire, they saw an angel of the Lord with them. And I'm trying to emphasize that regardless of what things look like, don't compromise. Hold on to your faith in God. In, in our current environment where so many people are willing to compromise to get along with family, to get along with friends, to get along with neighbors, to get along with society, to get along in Hollywood or in politics, people constantly take their values of the Word of God and their belief in God and set it aside. Don't compromise. If you fail to compromise, if you refuse to compromise, I think that's when God gets angels involved. Now the Bible does say the angel of the Lord encampeth about who? Those that fear him. And, and the scripture makes it plain in Psalm 91, we are protected by angels. So expect the Lord to be working on your behalf even when you don't see him working on your behalf. You have a covenant with him. And the covenant you have with the Lord is greater than the covenant Daniel had. The covenant you have with God is greater than the covenant Moses had and the Israelites. And the Bible says Moses and them had an angel that went before them every time they were led in the wilderness, and that same angel would come and stand behind them when the enemies were coming after them. So I think we should walk boldly. We should roll our shoulders back and know that we serve the King of Kings. Amen? Okay, so let's, let's look here again in Acts chapter 5, and, and let's move it on forward then to verse 29. Peter and the apostles have to give an answer. They've been told, do not preach about Jesus. They said, we ought to obey God rather than men. Of all the things that created controversy and stirred up problems in the book of Acts, nothing created controversy for that early church like preaching the resurrection of Jesus and preaching his name, telling everybody he's alive again. If someone did a miracle, it created problems, but not this kind of controversy. When they were filled with the Holy Spirit and people spake with other tongues, folks didn't understand it, but it didn't create this kind of controversy. But every time they opened up their mouth and they said, look, Jesus is alive and you killed him. And even though you killed him, God raised him up. They said, this is terrible because you're bringing this man's blood upon us and it's wrong for you to say that. We tell you right now, stop preaching the resurrection. Don't teach about the resurrection. They taught about it anyhow. So now Peter and the apostles have to make a decision. They've been told, don't talk about it, don't mention it, but they said we ought to obey God. Now why did they believe that? Because of verse 30. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus. He's not dead anymore. The God of our fathers, who were their fathers? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Noah, Adam, Moses, Samuel, Elijah, Elisha. 
you know, Ezekiel, Hosea, Joel, Zephaniah, all of the all of them were their fathers. Our God raised up Jesus. Now, why did Jesus need to be raised up? Because of the second sentence in verse 30, whom all of you slew and, hang, and hanged on a tree. He's telling all these Jewish people, you are culpable or guilty for the murder of Christ. Some people today, if you preach that publicly, here's what they'll say. Well, you're anti-Semitic. Well, what does anti-Semitic mean? They say you're against Jewish people. You say something like that. But we didn't say it. The text said it. The book says it. And however we try to sweeten the story of Jesus' crucifixion, and whatever we do to try to soften the language, it comes back to one thing. A Jewish man addressing a Jewish congregation said with Jewish lips, all of you killed our Savior. And our God, see, your God also, our God raised him up. How did Jesus die? On the cross. Why did he die on the cross? Because they treated him not like he was a common thief. They treated him like he was an enemy of the state. He was scandalously clad. They stripped him of his clothing. He's up there hanging with all of these bystanders walking by. It's an embarrassment. It's a shame. And that is exactly what they wanted. They did not want him to die a regular death. The Jewish hierarchy was opposed to him. It's just like when the medieval church had William Tyndale strangled at the stake and then burned his body alive. They did not want people to think about him in a good way. That's how Jesus died. So he, he was hanged on a tree. He hung on a cross. He died in front of everybody. He bowed his head. He gave up the ghost. And in the process was saying, Father, forgive them, Luke 23, verse 34. And he was saying, Lord, they don't know what they're doing. Nevertheless, into my hand, your hands I commend my spirit, and he died. Well, they took him off the cross, and then they put him in the ground, and God raised him up on the third day. Well, look at verse 31. It is him, Jesus, that God exalted, exalted, say that word with me, exalted. God took his son and exalted him. Now what exactly does this mean? So right now I want you to put your finger in that particular chapter, and I want you to go to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians, Paul's letter to the Philippians and I want to say a few things from Philippians 2. And I want to begin reading with verse number 5. Philippians 2, verse number 5. Here's how it reads. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Every one of us in here has the right to allow the mind of Christ to be manifested in our thoughts. How? Paul said, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Take the scripture, read the scripture, meditate on the scripture. These words can heal a broken mind. These words can heal a feeble mind. These words can heal a person who's had a nervous breakdown. 
But since the first word is let, that tells you this is a term of permissibility. You can be closed-minded or you can open up your mind and let the word of God in. It's up to you. You make the choice. This is what he says. And then he says in verse number 6, concerning Jesus, he was in the form of God, but he didn't think it robbery to be equal with God. So the text tells us God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are equal. Equal in substance, equal in personality, equal in temperament, equal in essence. Colossians says that in him dwelleth the fullness of the Godhead bodily. When he came into this world, according to verse 7, he made himself of no reputation. That tends to be what we strive for in life, to be known, to be popular. Kids want to run with the popular kids. People want to be part of the in crowd. People go to great lengths to be the best tennis player, football player, basketball player, golfer, wrestler, because they want their name to be known. They want to make it to state because they want to be the one that's known. They want to have a blue ribbon pig so that everybody knows that they had the best pig there at the county fair. So all of this is about reputation. But here's what the Scripture says of Jesus. He wasn't like that. He wasn't interested in whether or not he came in first in the running contest. He didn't care whether or not he won all of the prizes. He made himself of no reputation. He didn't come down here as a king. He didn't come down here as a conqueror. He took upon him the form of a servant. He looked like you. He looked like me. He got older. Probably gray hair started appearing in that beard of his. He was a person that the Bible says he became hungry. It says he was thirsty. The Bible tells us that he wept when he came to Jerusalem. The Scripture also tells us that he rejoiced, which means he smiled and he laughed and he was happy. The Bible also tells us that he became angry, and the Scripture says that he also slept. It says he became weary at Jacob's well and ended up with a conversation with a lady in John chapter 4. So understand then that he became like us in the likeness of men. The beautiful thing about it, he bled just like we bleed. See, he looked just like us. But verse 8 tells us, found in the fashion as a man, he humbled himself. That's an important quality for any of us. Practice humility. Because the one that is humbled will be exalted. And it said he became obedient unto death even the death of the cross. He knew he was born to die. He knew that. And, and the moment we all realize that we're not, how do I want to say, indestructible, I think that changes how we view life. You know, there's a point in every adult's life <clears throat> that they come to that they realize that they are no longer 24 and indestructible. There's a point. I don't know where it is. I don't know what exactly happens. But there's a point where something happens in an adult's mind and they realize, you know, I, I really don't need to be up here on the top of this ladder at the age of 77. Yeah. 
and, and, and there's a point where, where people start thinking, okay, it, it, it's fun to get down here to wrestle uh, with, with, the, with the grandkids, or even the mom and dad will say wrestling with the kids, but I'm a little bit past that because I've got some pains now from wrestling with them the last time. But once we realize we're fragile, and once we realize this body has been designed to die, it changes how we live now. It changes how we conduct our behavior. And this is what happened with Jesus. He knew that he was designed to die. He came into this world to die. So he knew the path he was on was taking him to Calvary. So he lived his life accordingly. He knew he was going to die. Well, notice then in verse number 9, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him. So God is the one that did the exaltation and gave him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. Things in heaven, things under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. So one way or another, Jesus will be glorified in life or in death. Now think about this. There is no one in hell right now that is an atheist. Everyone in hell knows there's a God. In fact, I'll say it this way. They know there's a God because were there not a God, they wouldn't be there. So they understood immediately when they drew their last breath and the adversary or whoever and however it happened, they were clutched and that soul was dragged down into that fiery pit with gnarling and gnawing of the teeth and with agony and anguish. And I promise you, as they were going down, they were wishing they could go up. Read the story of uh, the rich man and Lazarus in Luke chapter 16. It says that the dead, the poor man died, was carried to Abraham's bosom. The rich man died. He lifted up his eyes in hell and wanted out immediately. Couldn't get out. But you know what? If, if God were to open up an exit, and he said to everyone in hell, I'm going to count to 20, and all of you that can get out, before I count to 20, you will escape and get another chance. You know them folks down there would just about trample themselves? Because nobody wants to be there. But everybody down there with their tongues, even though they may still be blaspheming God, if they had another opportunity, they'd announce that he is Lord. I know they would. Yeah, they'd announce it. So the scripture here in Philippians 2 is pretty plain. Every tongue... We'll confess. Now, let's go back to Acts 5 now. Okay, back to Acts 5, and, and let me say something else here. In Acts chapter 5, verse 31, it says, Exalted him to the right hand to be a prince. So this man who made himself of no reputation, he was exalted to a place of power, authority, and royalty. And the scripture goes on to say he's a savior. He's a deliverer, a redeemer and a rescuer. We need a Savior. We need someone to guide us. So Acts chapter 5, verse 31 again, here is why he was exalted, to give repentance to Israel. This is why. 
to give repentance. Now, what is repentance? That's to turn from our sin and go in the opposite direction. True repentance is not just a change of mind. It's a change of mind, a change of attitude in the heart. It is the curbing of our behavior so we go in the opposite direction. That's true repentance. He was exalted to provide that. How does he give true repentance to Israel? Through the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes along and he works inside of our hearts and shows us where our sin lies. And once we can identify it, once it is revealed, then you can see in verse 31, it moves to the next one, and grants us forgiveness of sins. Now what is forgiveness? Forgiveness is the release of a grudge. It is for me to say I am not holding something against you. And since God is the one who's granting the forgiveness of sins, he's saying, look, all the hostility, all the enmity that you held against me, you thumbed your nose at me, you shook your fist at me, you said you don't believe in me, you said if you're really God, where in the world are you at? How come you're not working in my life? The Lord is saying, look, now that you have recognized your sin, I forgive you. You're free. And if, if, if I know that I'm forgiven by God, that changes everything. Forgiveness of sins. What accompanies sin? Guilt, shame, condemnation, anxiety, sometimes stress, occasionally illness, ulcers, depression. When I realize that I'm forgiven and my past was so terrible and I treated God in such a bad way, but now that I'm forgiven, it's like, oh, my goodness, you mean to tell me I really get to start all over again? That somebody is saying to me, you can start with an entirely clean slate. This is what God said to Israel, and this is what he says to us through Jesus Christ. You can begin again. So he was exalted to be Prince and Savior in order to give repentance, and forgiveness. So those two things are gifts. Gifts. Repentance and forgiveness. Notice verse 32. And we are his, what's the next word? Witnesses of these things. So the apostles are saying, we, we've seen this. We've, we've observed this. We have noticed Jesus' ministry. First John says we have had direct experience with him. We touched him, handled him, seen him, fellowshiped with him. Okay, then, well, what is the witness? Well, the Greek word has to do with a martyr, but it doesn't necessarily mean it has to be somebody who dies for their faith, even though that nuance is connected with the term. When Peter is saying we're witnesses, he's not saying we're martyrs in the sense that we're about to die. What he's saying is we can give direct, evident testimony regarding everything we just told you. That's what he's saying. In a court system, the only thing they want a witness to testify about is what he or she has seen or heard or experienced. 
They are not interested in secondhand opinion. They don't want to know anything about hearsay because on a witness stand, a witness can say anything that they've heard and can even make things up. So that, this is why they hone in on what is it that you yourself experience because that is where you're the authority figure. Well, look at the next sentence here. We are witnesses of these things, and so also is the Holy Ghost. Well, obviously, Peter and the apostles were there for Jesus' ministry. They traveled with him. They saw the miracles, the multiplication of the, the loaves of bread. They saw the coin come out of the fish's mouth. They saw him walk on water. They know that lepers were healed. They saw where a blind man and blind men and deaf people and demon-possessed were set free. Well, here we are now, 2,000 years later, how in the world can we be witnesses? Because Acts chapter 1 says, you shall be witnesses unto me. Then the Spirit of God came. And in Acts chapter 2, he goes on to say, and the promise is not just to you, but to those that are afar off in other countries, other generations, and to as many as the Lord our God shall call in other countries, in other generations. Here we are now, 2,000 years later. How can we be witnesses? We didn't see Jesus die on the cross. We did not see the miracles that Jesus did. However, the Holy Ghost who fills the church, the Holy Ghost by which we are born again, lives in our hearts by faith, and he it was a direct witness to all of these things, and it's because of the Holy Spirit that we can become witnesses. And whenever you testify, the Spirit of God in you gives you the assurance to know that what you're saying about Jesus, if it's a word, it's true. So when you read the Bible, and, and it says that Jesus was born in a manger. Spirit of God is inside of you, granting you assurance, and yep, that's exactly what happened. When you read in the text where it says, over the cross there hung the words, King of the Jews, and he died. The Spirit of God is in your heart, letting you know that is exactly what happened. When the text says he was raised on the third day, an angel came down pushed away the stone, sat on top of it, and then waited to tell the ladies, he's alive again. When that is read by you or by me, the Holy Ghost in us is saying through the illumination of our hearts that this is exactly what happened, and this is why we testify like people that had direct experience with it. And whenever a Christian talks about these things, we should do it authoritatively, we should do it boldly, and we should never do it in a mealy-mouthed way like we're not even securing what we believe. We say he died on the cross, he did die on the cross. Somebody didn't make it up, somebody didn't design this and draw it up in a book to make it seem like he was ill-treated. He was ill-treated. He was deceived, he was betrayed in the sense that his own disciple turned against him, not as though he didn't know it was going to happen. But God knew in the giving of his son that his son would die, be raised up, taken to heaven, but from heaven give gifts unto men, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. 
as long as the gospel is preached, there will be people who are apostles sent by God to different places in order to pioneer and lay the foundation of the truth of the Scriptures. As long as the gospel is proclaimed, there will be people called to prophesy the truth of God's Word under the inspiration of the Spirit. And because of that, the gospel being preached, there will be people who will repent, there will be people whose sins will be forgiven, and collectively these people will come together as sheep, and there will be pastors and teachers of these sheep. This is what we're getting at here. So in Acts chapter 5, again, verse 32, The Holy Ghost, whom God has given to them that obey Him. That means God does not give the Holy Ghost to sinners, only to believers. It doesn't matter what a sinner says. He doesn't receive this. And when a sinner runs around talking about, oh, I'm part of the brotherhood of the saints also, I believe in God, I just haven't accepted Jesus as my Savior, but I still have supernatural gifts that come from God, utterly deceived. I've heard psychics say that. Years ago when they used to have that program, that channel that came on, the, the psychic network, and they'd have these different Hollywood people that would uh, be used as witnesses for these psychic hotlines, they would get on there and talk about growing up in Sunday school and then talk about how they started learning about a lot of the psychic stuff, the, the divinations and all of that. And then they began to explain how their own gifts operated and they talked like it was God the Holy Ghost that was helping them. I'm telling you folks, it was a lie because God doesn't give the Holy Ghost to people that disobey Him in sin like that. No. The Scripture in the Old Testament said you aren't even supposed to allow witches and warlocks to abide in Israel. So why in the world would we then turn around and believe that sinful people who live that kind of life have the same Holy Ghost that you and I have? They don't. We're witnesses of an entirely different kingdom. We're ambassadors for an entirely different king. Now let me finish up with, with uh, verse 33. So having, having heard all of these things, verse 33 says that these folks were cut to the heart and they took counsel to slay them. If we're going to believe what we believe, and we're going to stand fast for what we believe in these last days when degeneration is setting in, when we see compromise taking place in churches, and again, the gospel being sweetened up so that people aren't offended. If you're going to preach the word and believe the word with truth, you can expect angry voices to rise up against you. At no time did Peter or the apostles ever say that Christianity was one way of salvation. If you look at Acts chapter 4, verse 12, if you don't know this verse, you ought to learn it by heart. If you've never put a mark in your Bible, and you do put marks in your Bible, put one by Acts 4, verse 12, and listen to what this says. 
neither is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Are you saying, Pastor Darrell, that the, the apostles were saying there was no salvation in the religions of Greece and Rome? That's what they were saying. Are they saying that there was no salvation in the religions of Africa and the pagan traditions of ancient Buddhism? That's what they're saying. When they say that there's no other name under heaven, are they saying that there is no other ancient term or description that is as powerful as the name of Jesus? Exactly. When, when they say that we must be saved, that means we may be saved. If we're obligated to be saved, then God has made it possible through the calling on the name of Jesus, whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be what? Saved. You cannot find, we cannot find, there never will be salvation in another faith or another religion. It doesn't matter what anybody says. They can call it narrow. They can say it's provincial. They can say it's provocative. They can say that's controversial. They'll say that that is opposed to every modernistic term and belief. It doesn't matter. Peter and them said there's no salvation in any of them. That's it. I didn't say that. That's what they said. And all we're called to do is proclaim what they said. Don't change it. Don't modify it. Don't water it down. Just show them the Scripture. And if they start wobbling over what it says, and they start shaking in their boots, and people start saying, well, I don't know if I believe that it means what you're saying literally, then you just let them know, if you don't know and don't have confidence in it, that's fine. I have confidence in it. I trust what it says, and I believe there's no other way to heaven other than Jesus. That's all there is to it. One road, not two. Somebody might ask the question, well, I just don't understand why why the Lord would do that, you know. Why would he just have one road to salvation? I even heard a Bible professor one time talking about when he was in high school. He was in a class, and he had a teacher that was very antagonistic to the gospel but knew that this young man was a Christian. And so this teacher would do everything he could to try to embarrass the young man and bring him up in front of everybody and ask him things about his faith just to mock him in front of all the students and make them laugh. And so one time the student was talking with the teacher after class, letting him know he just didn't appreciate being treated like that and thought it was inappropriate of an adult to do that to a high schooler. And the teacher said to him, I, I don't understand how in the world you can leave the Bible. He said, I grew up in Sunday school too, but the idea that, that, that there's just one form of salvation in all of these different religions that are on the planet, how, how in the world and why would God just create one road in one way? And so that young man said to the teacher, he said, look, I, I don't have an answer for you. All I know is that Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, and because of their transgression, sin is passed down to all of us, and we're all in need of a Redeemer, and we're all in need of a Savior. So you ask me why God would only provide one way. He said, here's a better way you can think about. Why would God, who's sovereign and all-powerful and owes no man anything, why would he, after man sinned, create any way? 
He could have just left us in our sins. But he created a pathway. And that one pathway was Jesus. From the foundation of the world, God had so loved this world that he gave his only begotten son, who had already determined that he would die before Adam and Eve's first sin. And whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Folks, I'm telling you, when God exalted his son, he put him in a unique position, and we should never be ashamed. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have put in your word something so powerful, yet simple, but yet true. And we pray that you continue to lead and guide us and reaffirm our faith in this daily. In Jesus' mighty name, and everyone said, Amen, 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 Amen.